system, announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. Weapons of class 4 and lower have been authorized for use during the purge. All other weapons are restricted. Government officials of ranking 10 have been granted immunity from the purge and shall not be harmed. Commencing at the siren, any and all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours. Police, fire, and emergency medical services will be unavailable until tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. when the purge concludes. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another show with Grizzly and the famous psychic Jeanette Matisse's Lucas. Yes, how are you there? I'm good. I'm here. Golly, what a week, hadn't it been? Unbelievable. So, how have you been doing? I, I'm I'm good. It's been a busy week. A lot of treasure hunters are calling. That's the awesome. Getting, yeah, a lot of a lot of. Uh, Weather's getting better for people to go out there and dig. You know, right now you got to think of the environmental problem. The problem is a lot of the locations, the earth is frozen solid. There's no way you can dig, whether you have a magnetometer or LIDAR or not. Right, right. So we got, uh, this is part two, am I correct, for Mr. Uh, Scott Carmichael? Yep. So this is interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, he is here in backstage. So let's go ahead and bring him on and welcome him uh, from coast to coast and across the world. Don't forget to uh, ask any questions. He's going to tell us about his famous case. And Mr. Scar Michael, hello there. Hey, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Welcome back. This is awesome. Well, I'm glad to be here. So how's your week been? <clears throat> Well, you know, my wife and I are fully retired, so every day is Saturday, and it's been a good week. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and what did, what did your wife do for a living? Was she tolerant of your little uh, ins and outs with the government? Well, Pam and I have been married for only a few years now. And, okay. uh, you know, so she was not with me when I was working for DIA. Uh, but believe me, she knows all about it. She's heard my stories. So, so you were married to the job? Were you were you married previously, or I was married previously? Yes. Uh huh. Did the ex-wife not uh, not like what you did, or was well, she? Well, she did. She worked. She worked for DIA as well before she transferred over to DHS, and uh, she knew exactly what I did. She's a former NCIS agent as well, so she uh -huh. was very familiar with my work. Hey, and there's uh -huh. Angela. And Angela Ford, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Angela. How Hello, are you everybody. doing? Okay. Welcome back. Thank you. We're waiting. I'm waiting to hear Scott's story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're just getting ready to dive into it. Uh, Jeanette is asking some probing questions. So this is yeah. interesting. I love it. So, yeah, no, I just wanted to see how somebody from the not that particular department reacted to the, um, you know, the, the other side of life, you know, the paranormal. I mean, it doesn't normally go with the black and white and the facts with um, DIA or CIA, et cetera. Right. <clears throat> Well, you, you don't ordinarily think about uh, psychics working with the government in that capacity at any rate. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, but it happened, and it worked out really great. It worked out just terrific for me and for Angela. I can tell you that uh, 
I felt like I, I had a lot of different cases that I, I could have used uh, Angela on, but unfortunately I, I got busy, you know, after uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, I got busy with a lot of counterterrorism stuff worldwide, as well as uh, working my counterintelligence. So I just got so busy that uh, Angela and I really didn't get a chance to get back together much uh, before she retired in 2010. Wow. So we had a great time. <clears throat> we hit a lot. I thought we did a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it. Sounds like it. So what kind of story did you have to share with us today, Mr. Carmichael? Well, I understood I was I was going to talk about Ana B. Montes, who was a Cuban spy at DIA for a period of about 16 years. And I thought I would begin first by telling your audience a little bit about DIA, where we worked, and then a little bit about Ana Montes, because I won't assume that everybody knows who she is. I'll tell you a little bit about her and then talk about the case a little bit if people are interested. First, uh, I worked for DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, for a period of 26 years from 1988 until 2014 when I retired. I was the uh, senior counterintelligence investigator for DIA, and my mission essentially was to constantly review our employee population in a search for spies among us. In other words, to determine whether any of our employees might be secretly engaged in espionage against us. Uh, and I did that for 26 years. I had some good success at that job. Uh, I identified a total of uh, four suspects as possible spies who were, in fact, subsequently convicted of the offense. And then quite a few others uh, who we knew were spies, but didn't have enough evidence to, to support a prosecution in, in a court of law uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So we uh, dealt with those people in other ways. Uh, DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, is uh, the nation's premier military intelligence agency. And its mission is to uh, assess and, uh, the military capabilities and intentions of foreign military powers. Uh, to that effect, uh, DIA uh, collects information about foreign militaries and then assesses exactly what they can do with the, uh, uh, the militaries that they have in the event that we should have a conflict with them. And the whole idea is to give the American warfighter an edge in combat. And, and I think that you saw that edge uh, demonstrated very effectively uh, during Operation Desert Storm way back in 1991. Uh, as you may recall, uh, Iraq and Iran fought a war for 10 years during the 1980s, and they were just slugging it out. Neither one of them gained an advantage. Both of them were very powerful militaries. But then in 1991, when the United States uh, attacked Iraq, uh, we defeated their entire military in a matter of weeks, and really it was over in a matter of days. How did we do that? Uh, we were able to do that primarily because intelligence. We knew the enemy so well. Uh, we had developed uh, the ability to counter their systems, to neutralize their systems. And, and in that fashion, we were able to just run all over them. And that's what we did. That is what DIA does for the warfighter. Uh, so DIA acts as a, an advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as well as the president. Uh, but we also support the, the warfighter directly. Now, uh, we have uh, people who collect information worldwide for us. And then we have analysts who analyze that information. 
Uh, and then there are support personnel. And I was among the, the support personnel. Uh, security is always a support function. Uh, and uh, Anamantis was one of our civilian analysts. Uh, she served at DIA for 16 years, uh, from 19, September 1985 until the date of arrest on 21 September 2001, shortly after 9-11. Anna was a Cuba specialist. So her mission essentially was to assess the capabilities of the military uh, uh, of uh, Cuba, but also their, their political events to stay on top of what Cuba was involved in worldwide. Uh, in time, uh, Anna became uh, the senior Cuba analyst, not just at DIA, but in the entire intelligence community. Uh, so she was commonly referred by her uh, colleagues as the Queen of Cuba. Uh, it got to the point where uh, you could not argue against uh, Anna. And it, it, naturally, she had a top secret SCI security clearance, as uh, virtually all of us did at DIA. She had access to enormous amounts of information, not just about Cuba, but about Latin America and just about anywhere else in the world that she cared to, to look. And uh, after 16 years of espionage on behalf of the Cuban government, uh, it was assessed that she caused exceptionally grave damage to our national security. She essentially took down the entire United States intelligence community's efforts against Cuba and, of course, a lot of other information as well. Now, Anna was an American citizen. She was born in a U.S. Army hospital in Germany. Her father was an Army officer. He was a psychiatrist. Uh, shortly after her birth, the family moved back to the States, and she grew up here in the United States. Uh, spent most of her time growing up uh, in Towson, Maryland, which is just on the north side of Baltimore. Uh, she was an exceptional student, uh, graduated from high school, and then got a degree, a bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia. Shortly thereafter, she obtained employment with the Department of Justice as a FOIA processor. Now, what's a FOIA processor? FOIA, of course, stands for Freedom of Information Act. And if you were an American citizen, let's say the Department of Justice prosecuted you for some reason, uh, and you'd like to gain access to all of their records about you, you would submit a FOIA request to the Department of Justice. Anna was one of those people who would receive your request, review your entire file, and decide what might be released to you and what might not be. Uh, she had a top secret SCI uh, security clearance granted by the Department of Justice uh, for that job. Now, during the early 1980s, Anna decided to go for a master's degree, and she did so at Johns Hopkins University, which is right there, and it has a campus in the D.C. Hmm. area. This is during the early 1980s. You may recall during that time frame, uh, Ronald Reagan was the president, and his mm -hmm. policy towards Central America in particular uh, was to draw a hard line to prevent the spread of communism in Latin America. And uh, to that effort, uh, we supported the government of El Salvador, for example, against a leftist insurgency. And we supported uh, uh, an insurgency called the Contras against a left leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Well, Ana disagreed with the U.S. government's policies in Latin America, and she was very vocal about her disagreement. At that time, again, she was a student at Johns Hopkins University, 
And as it happened, one of her classmates happened to be uh, a fully recruited Cuban agent, uh, Marta Velasquez. Wow. Marta introduced Anna to a Cuban intelligence officer uh, who operated out of the Cuban mission to the United Nations up in New York City. And uh, he essentially recruited her simply by asking her if she'd be willing to help. And she was. And she was recruited by the Cubans in December 1984. Now, at that time, she was still working for the Department of Justice. Uh, we believe the Cubans encouraged her to seek employment elsewhere where she might gain access to information that, have, that was of greater interest to Cuba. So she applied to a number of agencies, including DIA. And uh, in September of 1985, uh, she was hired by DIA to serve as an analyst. Now, she was already a fully recruited Cuban asset when she was hired by DIA. She had traveled clandestinely to Cuba along with Marta Velasquez uh, in June of uh, 1985 to receive training to become an agent and, uh, and then obtain employment at DIA. So she was a Cuban spy when she walked in the door. Now, I was employed by DIA in uh, June of 1988. And from June of 1988 until 1996, I'd never heard of the name Anamantas. She was a Cuban spy in the agency the entire time. Uh, she was, uh, by all accounts, an exceptional employee. By all appearances, a model employee. Uh, she was what we refer to in the Department of Defense as a blue flamer. Uh, she rose very quickly uh, based on merit. I mean, she was just uh, an amazing worker. At the same time, she was a Cuban spy. So she was essentially working both sides of that coin. She was working for us, and she was working for them. Now, again, uh, I was working hard as a counterintelligence investigator inside of DIA from 1988 to 1996 uh, when I first heard her name. Uh, and the fact that she was able to operate that long uh, without even coming to my attention uh, was remarkable. And it's remarkable uh, in the sense that uh, nobody ever suspected her of being anything other than a true blue all-American girl. So can I ask you this? I assume she was, as I talked to Angela about it, she was mostly motivated by money, but at the same time, she was in disagreement with the U.S. policies. Well, you know, her, her motivations really, really runs deep. Money had almost nothing to do with it, actually. Okay. Uh, Early on in her spying career, the Cubans realized that she did have some money problems. Uh, she did not have a, a, a good car that could get her to work, and she owed money to Johns Hopkins University for tuition. Cubans were afraid that uh, these money problems might come to the attention of security in, at DIA, and of course they didn't want that. So they provided some funds to her to, uh, uh -oh. to buy, to buy oh, a new no. car and to pay off that uh, tuition at Johns Hopkins. But that was the end of it. I mean, that's the last time she received a nickel and never asked for another nickel from them. Uh, her primary motivation, you might you might think of as being ideological. Uh, she disagreed with U.S. government's policies, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people disagreed with U.S. government's policies towards Latin America back in those days, including a lot of congressmen and a lot of senators. Um, they didn't become spies. Anna did. And, and so there's much more to her motivation than just ideological differences with the United States government. And I can go into that a little bit later on, perhaps. Um, Anna 
came to my attention in April of 1996 when another DI employee who occasionally interacted with Anna developed some concerns about her. Uh, his name was Reg Brown, and Reg did not believe that she was a spy necessarily, but Reg was very sensitive to the fact that there were Cuban spies operating in the United States. Now, we now know that back in those days, uh, Cuba had more than 100 Americans who were spying for them. Not all of them were in Washington, but we had good reason that there were some in Washington, D.C. Reg was a counterintelligence analyst. His job was to assess uh, the capabilities of Cuban intelligence, uh, particularly if uh, the United States Department of Defense happened to be operating anywhere in the world, and if Cuba uh, opposed our operations, Reg's job was to determine what they might be able to do to counter us, Cuban intelligence. Uh, that could be in Africa, it could be in Latin America, it could be almost anywhere in the world. So he would occasionally have interaction with Anna. He didn't work directly with her, but he did interact with her. And there uh, a few things occurred that uh, came to his attention and he was worried about her. So he asked me to take a look at it. Now, again, I had never heard of Anna. So uh, the first thing I did was uh, I went to look at her security file as well as her personnel file there at DIA. And what I found was what appeared to be an absolute model employee. Uh, Again, Anna was winning all sorts of awards. Uh, she was considered to be one of the top analysts in the entire agency, uh, and she was just a model. So before contacting her, I decided to run this entire idea past the FBI. So I contacted a squad over at the Washington field office who specialized in, in Cuba, and uh, they they generally knew who she was. They knew that she had interactions with a lot of their senior people, uh, not only analysts, but senior people at FBI headquarters. And they agreed with my initial assessment that she was the most unlikely candidate to be a spy that we'd ever seen. Ordinarily, uh, when we're uh, looking for somebody who might be a spy, you're looking for somebody who might have some sort of problems in their life. I mean, financial problems, psychological problems, something. And Anna was just the opposite. She was, I mean, absolutely the opposite. So their assessment was I was wasting my time. And and they were actually uh, concerned because Anna was having occasional professional interactions with somebody who was on their scope at that time, somebody not at DIA. So they asked me to hold off. Um, they were afraid that if uh, I pulled Anna in and asked her about uh, espionage for Cuba, that she might tell this other person and, and kind of blow their case. So I agreed to put it off. And I waited for like six months. I actually forgot about it. I was, I was a very busy guy. And then in October of uh, 1996, uh, Reg Brown gave me a, a phone call. And this time he wasn't quite so polite about it. He was an absolutely insistent that I do something about Anna after observing her again, interacting with some people he felt were, was inappropriate. So I decided to interview her and I interviewed her on the 7th of November, 1996. And I had three issues I wanted to cover with her. Uh, I won't go into all the details, uh, but Anna initially tried to take control of the interview, which is not terribly uncommon when people are being interviewed by security professionals. They're, um, uh, uncomfortable. They'd like to not be interviewed. Uh, 
and they want to get out of it as quickly as possible. And I understand that. I mean, I used to do this for a living, so I got it. Uh, initially, she, when she came in, she says, uh, you know, Mr. Carmichael, uh, I, I'm really very busy. I hope this isn't going to take a lot of my time. And and I know how to handle that. The way you handle that initial objection is you acknowledge it. You say, yeah, I understand. You're very busy. I get it. Yeah, I promise you we're just going to go right through this as quickly as we can. And then you sort of ignore the objection uh, because it's going to take as long as it's going to take. And I and within my experience, once you get into the interview, uh, the interviewee becomes much more comfortable and they don't worry so much about the time factor. But Anna didn't do that. <clears throat> I, before I had a chance to, to really settle my paperwork and so on, she hit me with it again. She says, well, Mr. Carmichael, uh, I'm in the acting division chief now, and I just assume these new duties. I've got all kinds of stuff to do. I really hope this isn't going to last very long. So I told her, um, again, I know how to handle these situations. And the way you handle it, the second time you get an objection like that, you acknowledge it. And then I, I told Donna, look, if, if now is not a good time, let's just reschedule. And you find a time when you've got uh, maybe an hour or so available, and then and I'll make myself available to you. She said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't want to do that. Let's just go ahead and go through this. So I was almost ready to start, and she hit me with it a third time. Now, this is unprecedented. I interviewed, I couldn't tell you how many, hundreds, thousands of employees. And... Uh, but nobody had ever hit me three times with an objection. And she said, but seriously, Mr. Carmichael, I'm so busy. Uh, I've got to be out of here by 10 to 2. Uh, I've got another appointment, and, and I just don't have that much time. So I said to myself, I said, well, this is enough. I was getting a little angry at this point. I'd given her a couple of options before, and she did take advantage of it. So I decided I've, I've got to hit her right between the eyes um, to get her attention and to just get her mind focused on what I had to do. But so I, did you, I, I got a good question. Yeah. So when you were sitting there, because a lot of times in different uh, court cases, um, people get to analyze their body structure, their oh. reaction facially. Did you notice any unique situation? Micro expression. Not, not at that time. She was very, you know, Anna is very businesslike, very sharp. Uh, and and she gave me that impression that she was, you know, a serious professional. And uh, uh, but I didn't read anything else at that time. That okay. came later. Uh, but what I decided to do, I decided to hit her right between the eyes uh, to get her attention. And I said, you know, Anna, uh, this is not a routine interview. I don't do background investigations. <laughs> um, I'm actually a counterintelligence investigator for DIA. And uh, I've been watching you for some time which was a lie. Good and, job. But I wanted to, to give her that impression. And I told her, uh, I think you might've been involved in a Cuban intelligence influence operation. I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> right between the eyes. Now at that wow. time, I did not know that she was a Cuban spy. I didn't really suspect it. Um, the FBI certainly didn't suspect her at all. I just wanted to get through my interview. <laughs> and I want to get her attention. And so it's thunder. She was obviously just absolutely stunned. She didn't say a word. She's just, all of a sudden she started staring at me very, very acutely studying my face. And upon reflection, uh, years later, actually, I realized that I had made a, 
a rookie mistake. Uh, typically, if you accuse somebody in that position of being a spy, uh, you're going to get a reaction. Uh, the first right. reaction is going to be confusion. Like, what What did you say? And if I confirmed it, well, I think you might be involved in espionage. Then they're going to start getting worked up a little bit. You say, well, what the hell are you talking about? What makes you think that? Uh, they're going to come back at you. And if you persist, they're actually going to get angry with you. And some people right. will actually come across the desk and lunge at you. Okay. But Anna didn't do any of that. Wow. She didn't say a word and I didn't pick up on it. And that was my big mistake. I was uh, too busy patting myself on the back, congratulating myself for getting there to shut up and listen. Uh, and I did not pick up on the obvious clue. Uh, so I went into my interview with Anna and uh, again, I had three topics to cover and she provided great answers for the first two topics. They were just, they were outstanding. I told her, uh, look, I'm not just going to take your word for anything. I'm going to actually have to corroborate everything you tell me. I've got to go find witnesses and so on. But, you know, I'm going to do my my due diligence. But she gave me great answers for the first two issues that I knew that I could corroborate. I was certain of it. And as we get as we went along in the interview and we got to about an hour and a half into it, uh, she was very comfortable at that point. She knew that she was giving good answers uh, that I could corroborate. And uh, we actually got to the point where we were very comfortable with one another. We were sometimes even joking or and that sort of thing. But then I hit my third point in the interview. And the third issue was this. Um, after uh, an incident that occurred over the Florida Strait on the 24th of February, 1996, and that was the shoot down by Cuban MiGs of two aircraft operated by uh, a Cuban emigrant group called Brothers to the Rescue. That was a big deal at the time. It was essentially the murder of four Americans uh, by Cuban MiGs in international airspace. And Anna, being the senior Cuba analyst, uh, was called into the Pentagon to provide support to the, to the war planners. Um, but she left early, uh, almost inexplicably. Uh, Ridge Brown actually called the Pentagon to ask a question, to pose a question to Anna, and was told that she had left around 8 o'clock, um, oh. which in our culture, in the DOD culture, you just don't do. I mean, if you're called in, you're the senior expert, and the war planners are asking for your advice, you don't leave until they're done with you. I mean, they actually have to dismiss you before you leave. But the word was that she'd received a phone call and, uh, and shortly after receiving the phone call announced to everybody that she was going to be leaving at eight o'clock. And then she did so. So uh, I talked to Anna about this and she admitted that she did leave. And her ex explanation was, well, look, uh, I'd been there all day long. Uh, I have some food allergy allergies. It was a Sunday she couldn't eat anything. She couldn't eat anything out of the vending machines that were available. She was starving. Nothing was going on at that time. So she just decided to leave. And she, she couldn't remember receiving a personal phone call. So I was not really satisfied with that. I, there was nothing there that I could I, to corroborate. So um, I asked her what she did. And she said, well, you know, I went, I went home. Well, by then I knew where she lived. So I started walking her back to her apartment, and my objective was to see if, whether she had bumped into anybody who corroborate her statement. So I said, well, look, I know where you usually park your car across the street from your building. 
I said, is that where you parked that? And she said, yeah, I always parked that. I said, well, do you remember whether you may have bumped into one of your neighbors or, or somebody that you knew who can verify this for me? And she said, no. And um, I said, well, look, I know there's a grocery store in the corner. Did you, you were hungry. Did you go down to the grocery store? Maybe you interacted with your grocer and maybe he could corroborate this. And, and uh, she said, no, no. I said, okay, so what did you do? And she said, well, I, I walked across the street to my building and I asked her, well, Anna, did you, did you see any of your neighbors or anybody who's walking their dog, anything like that? And holy cow, that's when there was a change in her demeanor that almost knocked me off my chair. Uh, one minute we're uh, just getting along great, just very comfortable with one another. And the next minute, this, look of extreme concern crossed her face and she was just staring at me. And, and I describe it as if you caught a little kid with his hand in the cookie jar and he's got his hand behind his back and you ask him, do you have a cookie? And he, and he denies it, but he's looking at you like, oh, am I get, getting caught? Do you know what I did? That's the look I was getting from Anna. And I had no idea what that was. So again, I walked her up. I said, how did you get up to your uh, apartment? And uh, did you bump into anybody in the hallway and so on and so forth? And she was just staring at me the entire time. And I could not figure it out. Uh, I didn't know what I had bumped into here, but I knew that I'd bumped into something. We concluded the interview. I went back, back briefed my bosses, back briefed the FBI. Uh, I did not have any information that I could use to uh, justify a polygraph exam. I mean, you've got to be able to justify that. You don't just give somebody a polygraph. And so I had to drop it at that time, but it left me with this nagging feeling that what the heck was it that I, that I stumbled across that concerned her so much. We learned years later after Anna was caught and debriefed by the FBI, we learned what it was. Anna had I'm been taught that if ever the Cubans needed to reach her in an emergency, uh, one of her old case officers would be standing across the street when she came home. And her instruction was, if you see your old case officer standing there, do not approach him, don't talk to him, but that is a signal that we need to meet with you urgently. And then she was given instruction on, on when and where they would have to meet her. Of course, the Cubans had just shot down these two aircraft. They needed to see her urgently, and that was it. So when I started walking her across the street and asking her, did you see anybody? She freaked out, and I had no idea what I'd, what I'd stumbled into at the time, but that's, as it turned out, that was it. Now, I didn't hear from Anna or about Anna again until, uh, I think it was December of 1997. Uh, I got an email from her. So this is a, a little more than a year later. I hadn't even thought about her uh, during that year. And in the email, she told me that... Uh, the Pope was going to visit Havana for the first time in January 98. And her colleagues at the State Department invited her to go down to the American interest section in Havana, along with them, uh, to kind of cover the Pope's visit. And uh, she agreed to do that. Her colleagues at the State Department recommended that since she was a member of the intelligence community, that she travel under uh, with a false passport and they would provide that with a false name. She sent an email to me asking what I thought of that idea. And I told her, oh, that's a terrible idea. I said, you're the senior Cuba analyst in the agency. There's a good chance the Cubans already know who you, who, who you already are. 
And of course, <laughs> I didn't know it at that time, but she'd been a spy for Cuba for about 10 years already or more. And uh, so I told them that'd be a bad idea because if they recognize you, they know who you are and you're traveling under a false name, that's going to draw more attention to you than necessary. So don't do that. But hey, listen, um, if anything unusual does occur during your trip, well, let me know. I'd be interested. Now, I'd probably said that to hundreds of DIA employees in the past who had traveled overseas to interesting locations, to China, to, to Moscow, wherever. I never had anybody get back to me later on to tell me stories about what happened to them while they were gone. Uh, people don't want to contact security officers for any reason, and they never did. But when Anna got back, she sent me another email. And in the email, she reminded me what I said, and she said, Something happened I thought you ought to hear about. She said there was a, across from my hotel, there was a botanical garden of sorts. And uh, one afternoon I decided to take a walk and I uh, got lost in the maze and decided to retrace my steps. When I turned around, there was a Cuban gentleman standing there in a three-piece suit. And I think that he was following me. Oh. And uh, I thought that this was very suspicious. And so I thought I better let you know when I got back. Now I read that and I got to tell you that just the, the tone, I believe it was just the tone of her email just set the alarm bells ringing in my head. I thought, what the hell is this? She's, she's trying to butter herself up with me. She wanted to get on my good side. I mean, a year later, she's sending this to me. So I, I didn't trust my own instincts. I gave this to one of my colleagues, this email, and without any, any background at all, I asked him, what do you think of this? And he said the same thing. Why is this woman trying to butter up to you? Why is she trying to get on your good side? And I said, I don't know. But I never forgot that. Now, again, I had no interaction with Anna for a couple of years. And in the meantime, something else happened, uh, which had nothing to do with me. But I need to pass this along so that you understand uh, how we found her. Back in, uh, I believe it was September of 1998, the FBI field office in Miami rounded up a, a spy ring, a Cuban spy ring called the WASP network. Uh, this was a network which was run by an element of Cuban intelligence that specialized in penetrating Cuban emigre groups, particularly those in the Miami-Dade County area. So this entire, I, I forget the numbers, but there were a number of uh, uh Cuban intelligence officers who were operating as illegal case officers in the United States. That is to say that they uh, came in with false uh, uh, identity papers, posing as Americans, living in the Miami-Dade County area, and their sole function in life was to service their agents, who were American spies, uh, penetrating these Cuban immigrant groups in Miami-Dade County. Well, uh, sometime in 1996, the FBI caught on to this spy ring. I won't tell you how. But during the course of their investigation, uh, they managed to identify everybody in the spy ring. They uh, conducted authorized surreptitious entries to their residences for a couple of years, got into their laptop computers, and broke into the Cuban clandestine communication system. Uh, let me cover that very quickly for you because you, you need to know this in order to understand. Uh, back in those days, uh, the Cuban Intelligence Service primarily communicated with their agents in the United States by uh, high-frequency broadcasts from Havana. These are one-way communications 
One way uh, directional antennas are used to broadcast clandestine messages to their assets on the ground here in the United States. And they, and they use the same uh, method to uh, broadcast messages to their illegal case officers who are also here in the United States. Now, these messages are encrypted using a very sophisticated algorithm. To my knowledge, NSA has never to this day been able to break that algorithm. Um, typically, uh, an agent might receive two or three messages a week. Uh, the Cubans are broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not every message is a valid message. Most of them are just BS uh, to confuse NSA so to make it more difficult for them to break the message traffic. And uh, this has been going on for decades, actually. And NSA actually records all these broadcasts, even though they can't break the messages. They figure, well, maybe someday we will. Well, this is a very secure means of communication. All the messages are encrypted. But beyond that, every single agent and every intelligence officer who receives a message has his own personal encryption key applied to that broadcast. So not only is it encrypted with a basic algorithm, every single message is encrypted with a unique key. So of 100 plus uh, spies in the United States, all of them were receiving encrypted messages that are individually encrypted. So that if NSA manages to decrypt one, they can't decrypt uh, another. Very secure system. And then to make it even more secure, uh, every six months, the call signs would change and the encryption keys would change. And then the encrypted keys for each each agent uh, would never be used again. They're only used once. So even if NSA somehow manages to decrypt one message, they'll never be able to decrypt any others. Uh, very secure system, but like most secure systems, there's a vulnerability. And in this case, and as in many cases, it's the human factor that makes it vulnerable. Uh, the idea, again, was that uh, these individual keys would be used once, one time only, never used again. Well, during the course of their surreptitious entries to the agents' residences, uh, the FBI managed to download their laptop computers, and they downloaded the encryption keys that the agents were using to decrypt messages, as well as to separate keys to encrypt messages that they would give to the, to the Cubans. So they collected all these keys, and that enabled them, of course, to decrypt all the messages that were being sent to and from those agents. Well, back at NSA headquarters, there was a young Navy enlisted guy, along with a civilian cryptanalyst, who decided to take these keys that the FBI had recovered and to run them against all this data that they had been collecting over the decades, hoping that maybe the Cubans screwed up. And sure enough, they did. One of the encryption keys that one of the agents was using to encrypt messages that would be sent to Havana, the Cuban intelligence service was using that same key to send messages to a Cuban illegal case officer who was living somewhere on the East Coast of the United States. And so for a period of six months, from July of 1996 until January of 1997, they were able to read 43 messages that were sent to that illegal case officer up uh, somewhere on the East Coast. Twelve of those messages made reference to an, an agent 
that the illegal case officer was handling. They referred to that agent as Agent S. Wow. NSA took these 12 messages and developed what we used to call a profile. Today, they call it a matrix because it's more politically correct. A profile of Agent S. Had no idea who this person was, um, but he had little pieces of information about that agent. Uh, they gave that information to a, an FBI agent at a Washington field office named, named uh, Steve McCoy, who was their senior Cuba agent at the time, and assigned him to identify Agent S. Steve worked on that for about two and a half years. And one of the pieces of information they gleaned from uh, the broadcast was that Agent S had visited Guantanamo Bay uh, during a two-week period in, in July of 1996. Well, that was probably the best clue that they had as to who Agent S was. Not everybody could travel to Gitmo. Uh, you don't hop on a commercial airline and fly into the Gitmo. you got to be authorized to go there. In fact, to go there, not only do you need authorization, but if you're going to talk classified information, you need to receive authorization and you need to pass your security clearances along. Those are two separate, though related, actions. So the FBI and NCIS got together and they went down to Gitmo to identify people who had been there in that time frame in July 96. There were two places that people could stay at Guantanamo Bay. One was sort of a consolidated um, housing facility for just about anybody and everybody who might go down there. If you were a contractor, Department of Defense, Department of Energy, Department of State, uh, CIA, DIA, NSA, whomever, uh, most people would stay at that consolidated facility. So they pulled the, the records, the registration cards for that facility uh, during the period in question and found about 100 names of people who had stayed there at that time. Now, th there was another facility people could stay at. It's called the Navy Lodge. And that lodge is typically used by VIPs. It's essentially a nice hotel. Uh, that's where you put VIPs up. And if there are whole families going down to get motor visit, somebody who's working there, you might stay at the Navy Lodge as well because it's more accommodating for kids and so on. Unfortunately, the Navy Lodge did not keep the registration records. Oh, God. So we didn't have <laughs> anybody there. No names there. But the FBI figured the odds were pretty good that the spy stayed at the consolidated facility because that's where virtually everybody stayed. And they had 100 names to work from. So Steve McCoy took these 100 names and started looking for the spy. Now, among the other tidbits they had about this particular spy, there was some information which strongly suggested to the FBI and to NSA, actually, at the time, that the spy was a CIA employee, uh, had, had extraordinary access to some particular CIA information. So they figured the employee probably a CIA employee. Also doing a little analysis on these messages, uh, they found that 70% uh, of the time, Agent S was referred to as a male, and only 30% of the time the agent was re referred to as a female. So they figured the odds were the agent in question was a male. So you're looking for a male employee of CIA, and you have 100 names to work with. Well, Steve worked through that 100 names, looking not only at employees but contractors, past employees, and so on, came up empty-handed. Uh, he then looked at, uh, at his own agency, he looked at State Department. Uh, he looked at NSA. Now, we're talking about a lot of people here. 
And uh, we're still coming up empty handed when something happened. And what happened was in, uh, I believe it was in about the middle of September of the year 2000, I learned about their case. Uh, what happened was NSA had provided all this information to the FBI and NSA felt that the information they provided about Agent S was so specific, the FBI would easily be able to identify the suspect. But after two and a half years, not only had Stephen Coy failed to identify a suspect, he'd never provided any feedback to the NSA analysts who worked on this thing. And they were frustrated. So frustrated that uh, they had a conversation with some DIA counterintelligence analysts and told them the FBI was working on this secret unknown subject, unsub investigation, trying to identify a Cuban um, who had traveled down to Gitmo in that time frame. And oh, by the way, there's one more tidbit of information they knew about the spy, and that is that the spy had access to something called a safe computer diskette. And, they, and nobody had any idea what a safe computer diskette might be or might refer to. Well, DIA had an automated message handling system back in those days, which was known by the acronym SAFE. It stood for Secure Analyst File Environment. And uh, Angela used that system probably on a daily basis. Uh, virtually every message that went to and from DIA from all over the world was retained in whole text format on DIA's mainframes, and it was searchable by keywords. So it was very handy for analysts to use as a, a search tool, if you will. So I was familiar with the SAFE system as well. Well, after a few days, our analysts decided to call me to let me know that the FBI had this uh, unsub case. They were looking for a Cuban spy. And the Cuban spy had access to something called a safe computer diskette. Uh, we didn't have computer diskettes at DIA at the time. I don't, I don't believe we were allowed to have diskettes of any kind in the building. But um, it was alarming enough that they decided to pass that along to me. So what I did is I got on the safe system. And I knew uh, that if you traveled to Gitmo, uh, you had to get permission and you had to pass your clearances and that all that is retained forever in whole text format on our mainframe. So I queried our mainframes for anybody and everybody who traveled to Gitmo during the approximate time frame in question. And I got about, um, I think I got about 100 hits. So I bracketed my query so that I would capture more than would be necessary. And I started going through these hits real quickly. I just hit a function key and, and I'm looking at the names, you know, to see if anything pops out. I, I was just hoping that something might pop out at me that would, would trigger a, a memory or something. And sure enough, the, the 20th message was Ana B. Montes going down to Gitmo. Now, given my experience with Ana in the past, given the gut feeling I developed, my concerns about her, <clears throat> I instantaneously knew that Anna was the spy they were looking for. I didn't know any of the other tidbits of information that the FBI possessed about this spy. I only had two tidbits. I didn't even know about the, the male-female CIA connections at that time. I wasn't, I wasn't privy to those pieces. All I knew is that the spy had traveled on Gitmo and had access to something called SAFE. And as soon as I saw her name, I, I knew it was her. So, so, so let me interrupt for one second. Was sure. Was she a married woman with children or she, no. so she, did she have a front or she was single? Uh, she was single. Yeah. Okay. Always, always single. 
Okay. So uh, I knew that a number of our counterintelligence analysts were already aware of this information, and virtually all of them occasionally had interactions with Anna. And my concern was, oh, God, if, if one of these people mentions to Anna that the FBI is looking for a Cuban unsub with access to safe, <laughs> that's going to blow the entire case. So I went down to our security chief and asked him to issue a cease and desist order to our analysts telling him to just shut up about this, that we were working on it, and we didn't want anybody talking about it. And I knew that within a few days, those analysts would get so busy with their own work, they probably would forget about it. And that's essentially what happened. The next thing I did was I contacted FBI headquarters and tracked down uh, a senior FBI agent who was working up there with Cuba shop, identified myself, and I'd never had any interaction with these particular people. I'd had a lot of interaction with uh, uh, one espionage squad at the Washington field office. I, I worked hundreds of cases with that particular squad during the past decade, uh, but I'd had no interaction with these Cuba people. So I told her who I was and told her I thought, you know, I told her that their case was compromised, but that I thought I had their suspect. I'd identified their suspect. So I made an appointment to go over to see him. And I went over there. It was on a Tuesday, as I recall. And I had brought along with me a huge stack of paperwork on Ana Montes. Uh, not only her security file, her personnel file, but a lot more information on Ana. And I knew that the first thing that they'd be concerned about is, well, how'd you find out about our investigation? That's always their, their primary concern is the integrity of their own investigations. And they were frankly pissed off about it. So what I did is I provided them a list of names of all the DI employees who, to my knowledge, were aware of their case. And I explained to them generally how that happened. I didn't tell them that it was an NSA analyst who gave them the information, but I, I told them this is how it happened. I handed that piece of information across the table, and there were probably seven or eight people at the table. And uh, their senior guy, who was the unit chief, was right in the middle. He took that piece of paper and left the room. And that confirmed for me that that's all he was worried about. How did you guys find out? Then I told him, look, uh, I've done a little work, and I think I've identified a suspect for you. And uh, she's a DI employee. Her name is Ana Montes, yada, yada. I didn't even get into my briefing. And another guy at the table said, uh, I've heard enough. Um, I don't think that I'm looking. I think I'm looking for a male agent, probably at CIA. I've never even heard of DIA. And um, uh, thanks a lot. And he got up and he left. And I, my only point of contact at the at headquarters at that time was a, a senior female agent named Adriana. And I said, who the hell was that? And she said, oh, well, that's Steve McCoy. He's the case agent on this case from WFO. Holy cow. So I handed all my paperwork to Adriana. And I said, get this to Steve McCoy. He's going to need this. And I was just in shock. I, I had never been treated that way in my life. And, and I knew in my heart, I knew that Anna was the one they were looking for. And so I was just absolutely in shock. Adriana took me and my colleague over to the elevator to escort us out of the building. And as we were riding down in the, in the elevator, I started getting more and more angry. I was coming out of my shock phase and I was getting my pissed off Scott phase. I'd been down this kind of road with the FBI before um, in other cases where 
turned out I was right. And I was really getting angry. And Adriana was very nice and she escorted us out. And uh, my colleague Gator and I ended up on the corner right on the front of the building. And I looked down in the direction of our, what it stated, the DIA headquarters building, which was on Bolin Air Force Base. And that's where Anna worked. And you couldn't see the building from where I was standing, but I could, I could look down there and I thought that B word is sitting in my building, pulling this crap on my watch and I'm responsible for this. And it really pissed me off. And so I told Gator, I said, Gator, and that was my colleague from DIA. I said, Gator, close your cases, everything you've got. And if there's something you can't close, I want you to farm it off to another agent because this is what we're going to be working on from now on. I said, the FBI doesn't know it, but we're going to war. We're not going to war with Anamantis. We're going to war with the FBI. Uh, and we've got to persuade them that we, we found their spy. Now, to make a long story short, uh, during the course of the following month, I managed to get from NSA all the other little tidbits about this spy that the FBI was looking for and matched them up against Anamantis. I think there was only one piece that I couldn't match it simply because I didn't have access to information, but I matched all the rest. And I kept on feeding this stuff to Steve McCoy. Back in those days, we used fax machines. And so I would, I would find <laughs> something that matched the spy and I would fax it to Steve. And of course I didn't want to reveal to Steve that NSA was talking to me because they'd already gotten to NSA. They figured it out themselves and threatened the NSA analysts that if they revealed any more information to anybody, uh, they would have them prosecuted. So Believe me, getting information out of NSA about this espionage case was not easy. It took me forever. And, and the only way I could persuade them to do it was to promise them to give them immediate feedback. I knew that they were frustrated because the FBI never gave them feedback. So I told them, you're the first one I'm going to give feedback to. And it worked. Uh, eventually, they gave me the whole enchilada. I matched it all up, kept feeding it to Steve. And, uh, but it just didn't work. And uh, I went over there once. I made an appointment with another squad. And while I was in the building, I called Steve and said, hey, I'm in the building. Let me come up and talk to you for a minute. And he said, yeah, come on up. He still hadn't even begun to look at my paperwork that I'd given him. So again, I got a little angry and I, I finally asked for a meeting with his squad leader, which is like the kiss of death for me. Uh, that's something in our culture you don't do. building with a street agent, you don't asked to talk to his boss. And I knew that I'd been around forever. And I knew that this was going to hurt me professionally. The word would get out and, and there'd be a lot of people who would not want to work with me, but I knew it was Anna. And so I, I made the request. He scheduled it and it was going to be on Friday, the 13th of October, uh, the year 2000. Now, just to cover my, my bases, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I was going to be successful. Like I said, I'd been working with a particular espionage squad at WFO for about a decade. And I, I worked with them very closely. I went to the squad leader, a guy I knew and very well. And uh, I briefed him on what I had. I essentially showed him, look, here's what we know about the spy. Here's what we know about Anamantis. It all matches up. It's got to be her. They're not listening to me. He took it to his branch chief, and the branch chief, fortunately, used to be Steve McCoy's branch chief, and he was very familiar with the case. He looked at my paperwork and said, we'll open the case right now. 
And I told him, no, don't do that. I said, I've got an appointment on Friday and I need to give these people a chance to turn around. So um, they agreed. And I went to the meeting on Friday and uh, I think Steve went, no, I went first. So I briefed uh, a squad leader, showed him what I had. And she said, well, that's all very interesting, Scott. But, you know, Steve's uh, my senior agent on Cuba. She, he's been on the target for 12 years. I've got to trust his uh, judgment. And so I've got to go with him. Well, while I was briefing, uh, all these different points, Steve was taking notes like crazy. And every once in a while, he'd say, where'd you get that? How'd you get that? And I realized that Steve had not been looking at the material that I was passing him piece by piece. But once he saw the whole picture, he realized himself that, holy cow, I can't ignore this. But he did. And once again, I was escorted out of uh, the FBI building with a big fat no. Now, Steve's only input really on that entire meeting was, well, there's one piece of information here that I have. And on the basis of this alone, I can eliminate your employee on Amanda's as a suspect in my case. Now, I had an inkling as to what that was going to be. I hadn't done my homework on it yet, but I, I was afraid that it might come up. Uh, and I, I don't want to go into it in a lot of detail, but it was technical. And, uh, and I knew that there was a, a problem with it. I decided uh, I'd better go into, into work on Saturday and go to work on this problem, figure it out. And I did. And without, again, without going into the details, I essentially recognized a pattern that could not possibly happen in a random world. And it, it proved conclusively to my mind, Anna had to be the one. Uh, and so I, I wrote up an eight page memo and I faxed it over to Steve on Monday morning. And within the hour, he called me up and said, Hey Scott, uh, here's my home phone number. Here's my pager number. I think you and I are going to be working a lot the next year or so, uh, we need to get this off on the, on the right foot. And at that point, and from that point on, uh, we were a team. And uh, my frustration absolutely dissolved. And I realized that we had a great deal of work to do. And the only way we could be successful was to truly work together as a team. And that's what we did. Uh, we worked on that case for a year. And uh it took us five months just to get FISA authority uh, to do some of the more uh, intrusive, to employ the more intrusive measures that we could uh, to collect information about Anna's activities. So that might include tapping her phones at work, uh, tapping her phones at home, um, uh, tapping her access to fax machines and, and any other electronic device. Um, the FBI had been following around, of course, but all they were really doing was obtaining information about her routine. And uh, after five months, uh, what I did is I anticipated that we would get FISA authority eventually, and we were going to have to have a monitoring post. That is a place within our building, which be in close enough proximity to Anna's workspace, where we could install cameras and that sort of thing, and then monitor it in this specially made room. Uh, I prepared that room. Uh, and eventually, after about five months, we got FISA authority. The FISA judge said it was the weakest uh, affidavit that he'd ever read for FISA. And one of the reasons being 
because uh, Anna had successfully completed a DIA-administered counterintelligence scope polygraph exam in March of 1994, just years earlier. Now, by then, we believed, and turned out to be true, Anna had already been working for the Cubans as a spy for 10 years. And the way she worked was she typically would not remove anything from our building because she might get caught. So she took everything out in her head. At night, she would go home, type it up on her laptop computer, encrypt it with a, a software that the Cubans provided. And about every two weeks, she would have a meeting with a Cuban intelligence officer in Washington, D.C., typically at a, a Chinese restaurant off the red line in Washington, <laughs> and uh, hand over her disk and answer any questions she's got, take, take instruction. And that's essentially the way she worked. Now, uh, But she continued to receive broadcasts as well, three times a week. Three nights a week, she would receive broadcasts from Havana. She'd been doing this for 10 years. She had more than 200 personal meetings with Cuban intelligence officers in that time frame, uh, during which she handed over classified information. She had traveled clandestinely to Cuba on three occasions uh, during that time frame. And then in March of 1994, took her first polygraph exam and passed it. Or in essence, she defeated the examiner, but she defeated the, the examination process. We had to reveal this to the FISA court and uh, on the basis of that, uh, he thought that this was a pretty weak affidavit, but he, he signed the order. And of course, that only gives you 90 days to collect information. And after that, you've got to go back to the judge and tell him what you got. So you kind of hope that you're going to get some evidence. I think we finally got FISA authority in February or thereabouts. And in the meantime, uh, and then we, we set up our monitoring post. The FBI was monitoring constantly. And it wasn't until sometime in May that we finally got something. And what Anna did was, uh, again, the FBI knew what her routine was. They're following her all the time. Uh, and one day, I, I think it was on a Sunday, typically, Anna would go up on Wisconsin Avenue and she would go to a particular sporting goods store. And then we go to some other stores in the area and would end up going home. Now, this was part of her routine. Well, they were following her this day on a Sunday, and I think it was in May. And uh, she parked in the parking garage next to the sporting goods store. So the FBI parked on the top floor and uh, just kind of hung out waiting for her to come back. Because, again, this is part of her routine. They knew that she would be back. Well, fortunately, one of their surveillance happened to be near the edge of the building looking down when he saw Anna exit the store in the back door. And outside the back door, there was a bank of three pay telephones. Anna sat down on a half wall, looked at her watch, and then at exactly one o'clock, placed a telephone call using one of those pay phones. Call didn't last very long. She went back in the store and, and she left. Well, the Bureau continued to follow her, but one of the surveillance, what the FBI will do when they see something suspicious like that is they'll mark the call. And the way you do that is you go to that same telephone uh, next, you drop a quarter in, and you call uh, a number that you know, and then you can go to the telephone company, AT&T, maybe the next day and say, hey, look, I placed a phone call from this telephone at this particular time. Uh, can you tell me about the call that happened just before my call. And that'll tell you what 
what she called. Um, what Anna did that day is she went further down the street, parked her car. Uh, we knew that Anna had a cell phone of her own. So even making a phone, a phone call uh, from a payphone was a little odd. Uh, what she did is she, she had the cell phone with her that day. She walked up the street, crossed the street, went over to another payphone on the corner, made another payphone call. Uh, later on, the FBI was able to determine that those calls were placed to a pager um, operated by Cuban intelligence up at the UN mission in New York City. And how did we know that? Well, again, I didn't find this out until after the case was over. <laughs> but the FBI had already recruited a Cuban security officer at the UN mission uh, in New York City. And that guy had access to the pagers and to their logbook. And uh, after Anna was arrested, he defected and he brought the logbook with him. So uh, that was a nice piece of evidence to have. So that we finally got something on her that we could tell the FISA court to continue the FISA authority. There wasn't a whole lot more. The FBI uh, conducted a surreptitious entry to her residence. Uh, they found the uh, radio that she was using to receive her calls. They found her laptop computer. Uh, they, uh, you know, copied the, the hard drive on it, found a lot of communications to and from Havana on that, on that laptop and some other materials that they found, uh, which were all good circumstantial evidence against her, never caught her in the act of actually meeting with the case officer. And what we learned later on was that after that 1998 arrest of all those Cubans in Miami, the Cuban intelligence service shut down their operations in the United States. They stopped having personal meetings in the United States because they were afraid that if they showed up for a meeting, the FBI would pop in and arrest them. So they started having all their personal meetings overseas. A lot of them were in the Caribbean. And that was part of what I found on the 14th of October, 1996 or 2000, when I did my homework to, to persuade Steve, I saw that pattern. I saw that Anna, uh, all of a sudden, first time in her life, was making a lot of trips to little islands in the Caribbean all by herself. And uh, they happened to coincide with times when the Cubans were broadcasting messages to Agent S up in Washington, D.C. So she was traveling south as they were broadcasting north. And it was just too coincidental. Um, this was not a coincidence. That's, this is a deception operation uh, to fool the FBI and NSA. Uh, if they develop suspicions about Anna, they would immediately dismiss it by saying, well, Agent S is in Washington during all these travels. Uh, I found that pattern and showed them that this is not a coincidence. This is a deception operation. That's how I persuaded Steve to open a case on Anna. Well, this went on for a long time. Um, in um, June 8th of the year 2001, um, Anna was at home. Of course, the FBI had planted some listening devices in her walls as well as cameras. <laughs> And they watched her as she was listening to a radio broadcast, which announced that the Cuban intelligence officers who had been arrested by the FBI in Miami in 1998 had been sentenced and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of, of parole. Anna broke down and immediately called a uh, counselor that she had once used, told her she was having the worst day in her life and she needed uh, to have a counseling session. 
What we learned later on was that one of the Cuban case officers who had just been sentenced to life in prison in the United States without possibility of parole had formerly served as one of Honest case officers. Wow. Honor realized that night that he had a get out of jail free card. All he had to do is to tell the Department of Justice about Anna, and he could get out of jail. So she figured all throughout the summer of 2001, sooner or later, the FBI is going to come knocking on her door. And she was just waiting for it. Well, uh, we did a few more things, but to make a long story short, uh, 9-11 happened. And when that happened, I realized immediately that our case was coming to an end. Uh, DIA was going to be get involved in Operation Enduring Freedom uh, to kick the Taliban out of Afghanistan. And Honda was going to be leading a team that was involved in um, battle damage assessment of, of our targets over there. She was going to be briefed on Saturday, the 22nd of September, on our entire war plan for oh. Afghanistan. And I knew there was no way our admiral... Uh, was going to allow her to continue to operate in DIA under those circumstances. So it was coming to an end. We finally uh, orchestrated her arrest, uh, which was on Friday, the 21st of September. And uh, she invoked her rights to silence and to legal counsel. Fortunately, again, she anticipated that she was going to be arrested. She thought that the jig was up. Those of us who were involved in the case, uh, and we're very intimately familiar with the details, figured there was no way we would get a conviction. Just no way we could get a conviction. We had a fair circumstantial case. We were surprised the Department of Justice, uh, internal security section even accepted the case, but they did. And we got lucky. Uh, Anna believed that, her, that, that she was done anyway. And so she told her attorney to just make the best deal she could with the Department of Justice. Wow. They cut a deal. And uh, Anna, part of the deal was Anna would spend 25 years in prison, and uh, but she would have to submit to a full debriefing, and she would have to be honest during the debriefing. Um, and so she did that. Now, uh, a little tidbit which is telling about Anna is this. Uh, she was going to have to submit to polygraph examination by the FBI throughout the debriefing process to make sure she was telling the truth. And she was told up front, that uh, we know that you managed to defeat the process in 94. We know how you did it. And if you try it, then the deal is off. You're not going to go to prison for 25 years. You're going to go for the rest of your life. No possibility of parole. So the FBI polygraph examiner hooked her up. And sure enough, Anna tried to defeat the exam. Oh. And so he came around to the front. He said, what did I tell you, Anna? And from that point on, she played played it straight. That she this tells you a lot about Anna Montes. Uh, it takes a lot of guts to go into a closed room with a polygraph examiner. Angela's been there. I've been there a number of times. I can tell you, no matter what you imagine and fantasize that you might want to do, once you get in that room and he hooks you up, you don't even think of it. I mean, you don't even think of it. You just want to get through this. But Anna did, and she did it twice in her life. Uh, she was uh, quite a character. So, uh, uh, again, Anna, Anna just got out of prison this past January. Uh, wow. She's living, yeah, she's living in Puerto Rico. Uh, free woman, essentially. I mean, she's got some restrictions, obviously. Uh, 
but uh, but that's the case. And again, the battle damage or the damage assessment was exceptionally grave damage. Anna had access to top secret SCA information for 16 years, uh, gave everything to the Cubans. Um, I'll tell you just one little one little idea is the kind of damage she did. In uh, 1996, uh, the, the DCI at that time, the director of central intelligence was George Tenet. Uh, George Tenet was, he wore two hats. He was the director of CIA and at the time, the director of central intelligence. So he was the, the big kahunga in the United States intelligence community. Uh, in 1996, he mandated that five hard target studies be conducted on five countries that were difficult to collect on. Uh, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and Cuba. And the instructions were put together some teams. Uh, we want you to assess everything that we're doing now to collect information about those countries and then come up with some new methods that we might employ in the future. And we'll try that for five years and see how that goes. Well, Anna was a member of a four-man team that was put together to look at Cuba. And she happened to be the junior member of, of the team. She was a GS-14 which is a mid-level analyst. Uh, I mean, a, actually a senior analyst, but a mid-level employee. And as the junior member of the team, she became the gopher. And so Anna went around to all the agencies, CIA, NSA, FBI, DIA, Army, Navy, Intel, uh, everybody, every member of the intelligence community, and was briefed on absolutely everything that the United States intelligence community was doing to collect information on Cuba. This is detailed stuff. Uh, not only every every agent the CIA had, but every agent that they were assessing. Uh, every technical collection that NSA was employing. Uh, she knew everything. And, of course, she gave it all to Cuba. Additionally, she had been briefed into a couple of special access programs, one of which, uh, you know, Cuba would have very little uh, interest in. The problem with uh, Anamantas spying for the Cubans was that Cubans share their intelligence take with other countries. Uh, and so if you're a spy and you give the Cubans information, they're going to give that information to the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, uh, the Venezuelans, anybody they like. And they did it constantly uh, on a compromise, a special access program that would have been of great value uh, to Russia and to China. And what that enabled them to do was to uh, either completely deny our access through that channel or they could begin to play games with us. They could feed us false information through that channel. We would believe that it was still good. And in fact, it would be false. So Anna, she damaged the national security to an extent that the average American can't even begin to imagine. Uh, but she set us back a, a long, long ways. And... Um, that was probably my most uh, publicly celebrated case, if you will. Um, there were others uh, that were uh, one of which was probably more damaging. But but on was bad. We we had reason to believe that of the more than one hundred agents the Cubans had back in those days, Anna was probably number three or four on their list. So uh, we heard them, but they still had more than hundred agents uh, who were providing information to them. So. We're continuing to lose. And that's just Cuba. Wow. That's, that's, that's the story of Anamantis. That's not the whole story, but that's most of it. Yeah. I'm sure you can't tell us everything. I'm just curious. Um, I, I dated a guy one time who was 
DIA uh, Naval Intelligence, and hmm. we had to fill out forms because we were going to get married. Fortunately, I did not marry him. And <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were talking about uh, security and so forth. And he goes, they want information on your finances. And I said, well, you know, I'm a poor secretary. I don't have any finances. <laughs> and he goes, we, they want to make sure you're not selling anything. I said, what? <laughs> My extra clothes? I mean, yeah. you know. so did they ever did they ever talk to you about who did they? I guess they found out later that she had um, paid off her schooling and her debts yeah. in order to yeah. get a car. And when did that happen? Well, I mean, we there were a number a number of red flags uh, that, that surfaced even before the investigation, uh -huh. which were rationalized. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I mentioned earlier that she strongly disagreed with the U.S. government's policies towards uh -huh. uh, Central America in the 1980s. She was very vocal about it. Well, uh, when she came on board with DIA, uh, we had the Defense Investigative Service do another background investigation on her. And during the course of that interview of her, uh, that was brought up uh, about her disagreement. And Anna provided just a terrific answer. This is typically Anna. She said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I did and I do disagree with the U.S. government's policy towards Central America. And, um, you know, as an American citizen, that's my right, you know, and I'm not the only person. Lots of congressmen and senators who disagree, but you know, I've never advocated the overthrow of the United States government, and uh, and I'm not that kind of person. I'm a loyal person, and and it was accepted. Now, five years later, you know, every five years there's a, an update to our background investigations. They essentially do it over again, kind of update it. So five years later, DIS did another update on Anna, uh, and that was in 1991, I think. Yeah, 1991. Uh, the interviewing agent asked her the same question. And she, interestingly enough, she provided exactly the same answer. Well, yes, I did disagree. That's my right to disagree as an American citizen. I'm not the only one, congressmen and senators, yada, yada. But I've never advocated the overthrow and it was in the same sequence. Now, I interviewed her in 1996. And I decided to ask her the same question. And the reason was because I already began to develop a, a concern that she had memorized. She anticipated that question twice before. And she had obviously memorized her answer. And I wondered, well, who does that? I mean, why would she be so concerned about the question that she would actually memorize the answer? I wanted to see if she did the same thing with me. And sure enough, she did. She gave me the exact same answer in the exact same sequence completely. And well, that was one more thing that bothered me. Like, this woman is worried well, about that. Well, let me so, ask you a question. I'm sure this yeah. it, it answers itself. But I assume that the Cubans trained her how to be a spy toward mm -hmm. the Americans and said, just keep a consistent story and say this, this, and this. And then she thought, oh, if I still keep it in the same sequence... I'm covered. They believe me the first time. They believe me the second time and the third time, but then that's, it sparked an interest in your head. Yeah, that's it's quite possible that they covered that particular issue with her. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, I can tell you that Anna is a very sharp person, and uh, they trained her well. You know, you, spies use tradecraft in order to keep their activity secret, and it worked. Uh, 
she maintained a very low profile. She was very frugal. She wasn't spending too much money. She wasn't in debt. Uh, she wasn't a problem at work. She wasn't removing material from work. Everything they told her to do and to not do, she did. Uh, she followed their instructions to the letter. And, uh, and I think that that's uh, exceptional. Uh, and uh, Anna was extremely disciplined, very disciplined person. Not only smart, but very disciplined. Uh, we saw that in her work ethic. I mean, I watched her a lot, as you can imagine, from my monitoring post. And Anna would typically come in at work right at 8 o'clock on the dot. And she would leave a pile of, of paperwork next to her computer the night before. And the moment she sat down, when everybody else at work is engaging in small talk, you know, hey, did you see the game last night? Or where'd you go on vacation? Anna would never engage in anything like that. Eight o'clock, she would sit down and she would start to work. And she would work straight through until lunch. Then she would get up and go down to the cafeteria. She would get something, bring it up on a tray, sit down and work through lunch. And then work straight through till five o'clock. Five o'clock, she'd be out the door. Uh, I've never seen discipline like that before. I, I, wow. I didn't even make of it, but that was her life. Yeah. Uh -huh. well, I've got a question for you. Yeah, now, I yeah. miss interviewing people, right? Now, mm -hmm. I don't know how you interviewed people, how DIA taught you all. I know you probably had the FBI uh course like i did and several other government agency courses like i did in law enforcement but uh i would not let them sit behind a desk i would put a chair in front of me and we wouldn't have a conversation that way i can yeah. always watch their body movements or micro expressions uh, yeah. i loved how they played with their rings uh right. the fake lint off their clothes you know, yeah. rubbing yeah. their ears. And, Fine time. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so. when I interviewed, when I interviewed Anna on the 7th of November, 1996, she was sitting right next to me at the table. I didn't have a table between us or anything like that. I wanted to be right next to her so I could pick up on all that stuff. And like I said, uh, you know, typically interviewees are nervous initially. And, and so you don't want to overread things, you know, and, you get used to that after a while. And typically after you've been with them for maybe 20 minutes or so, people get, begin to loosen up a little bit. And yeah, you can see that. Yeah, you're getting their baselines, what you're doing. Right, exactly. And and that what that does, you, you, you said it exactly right. You establish their baselines, and that is what helps you uh, when you hit a nerve. Because oh, yes. all of a sudden the, the, the demeanor changes, and you realize you've, you're onto something. And so, yeah, I mean, I obviously I've interviewed a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I probably got around 1900 plus underneath my belt. And, no, you know, a lot of people were like grizzly. Well, if they looked up to the left and they're this way and use oh, this yeah. hand, this is true. Well, no, yeah, not right. necessarily because right. you have to establish the norm first. Exactly, exactly. And once you establish that and then you start hitting on the nerve questions, then right, that's right, when right. you start picking up like, oh, yeah. shit. You ask them, the easy, yeah. ask them the easy questions where you know that they're going to be giving you the truth because why not? Right. And, and that gives you the baseline. Yeah, Mr. Sure. Carmichael, what did you have for dinner last night? Exactly. That kind of question. <laughs> right. And at my age now, I probably don't remember, but that would be a good question. I, I couldn't tell you right now either. I'm only 48. So. <laughs> but no, I do miss interviewing people. Uh, when I went to the civilian side, uh, people thought I walked on water because they were like, 
how do you get confessions like you do? And it's like, it's not hard, right? Well, when I went to the civilian side, it was funny. I had to take the Wicklander course for the civilian side. And when I took that course, uh, nobody was interjecting or, or, or helping during the class. So I would raise my hand and finally he was just like you don't ask or raise or answer another question. I want to see you on break. And he was like, okay, you must be in law enforcement. No more. You do not participate (laughs) in anything else. So they cut me off. So, well, you know, a key is establishing rapport, you know, I can tell you that the one time that I was able to employ everything I learned uh, was early on in my career at DIA. And I I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this thing, but it was the first spy that I personally identified. And I, I participated in the, uh, the interrogation of the guy. And uh, uh, what I did is I'd figured the guy out psychologically. I, I, I did. Right. I, right. I knew that uh, uh, this guy had a hard time saying no to people. And uh, I, I felt that he suffered from low self-esteem. And the way that he felt better about himself was by helping other people. And, and that's why when people would ask him for help, he would immediately jump at it and give him 100% all the time. He was very busy. And so uh, this is this was my suspect. And so I, what you want to do when you uh, interrogate somebody is to, to develop a theme which will be attractive to them. In other words, right. it'll keep talking. Otherwise, you talk to somebody about uh, the possibility they're a spy, and the first thing they're going to do is invoke the <laughs> yeah. right to silence and legal counsel. And then that's that the only correct. Interview. So your real objective is to keep them talking, get them interested. Right. So with this guy, I actually wrote down five sentences that would I would use to open up the interrogation. And they were all designed to appeal to his sense of helping people. And so I told him that we had a problem and that we needed some help on it. And that after looking at this uh, problem, we, we realized that he might be in a great position to help us. So we were hoping that he would help us. And he already started nodding. And by the, I had five sentences. By the time the fourth sentence was out of my mouth, he was not only nodding, but he said, I'm the guy you're looking for. I did it. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to ask him. He knew what we were there for. Yep. But just like that, I had appealed to that sense in him that we needed his help. He was the only one who could help. Please help us. And that was the appeal. So it's a theme uh, when you interrogate. And that's a little bit different than interviewing you. You know, interviewing you just to say, well, yeah, interviewing, we use that. Uh, it was a, it's a more softer term, you know, instead of interrogation, a lot of people, you know, take the interrogation term is like, you know, they see it on TV, like throwing the books, you know, no, ladies and gentlemen, we didn't use the phone books and the slapjack. That is not it. (laughs) No, no, I'm not going to give away any more uh, details on what we do because we know, we don't know who's going to be watching this or is watching it. But well, I've actually, Mr. Carmichael, have spoken to people within 20 minutes and asked them the questions. And I learned that the human body does not want to lie. It wants yeah. to tell the truth. Yeah. So you can ask somebody a question and they will say no, but they will nod their head. Yes. Yes. Right. Or they'll and do that something. is, I love it when they do that, you know, and, as, and I well, always say, thank you. I appreciate you admitting that or thank you for acknowledging that. They're like, well, I'll tell what you, are you talking I, about? <laughs> I spent 37 years in, in law enforcement, and I've known three 
uh, natural interrogators in my life, and I'm not one of them. I can't do what they can do. And it's not the third degree. It's not screaming at people. No. These, these are people who can automatically, instantly connect with anybody. And they just sit down and they talk. And, they, and boom, just like that, rapport is there. And, and they just talk. Uh, I've seen it in action. And I'm absolutely in awe of them and scared to death of them. If I ever did anything wrong, <laughs> uh, they'd be all over me, you know. Um, but it, it is not, um, I think it's a gift. And I don't have it. I, I was pretty good at establishing rapport and doing interviews and getting the, uh, collecting the information I needed. But interrogation is, is another animal. Well, a lot of people say I have that gift, but I also say it's a curse because it affected my marriage life. Uh, it affected my friends and family, yeah. uh, you know, because you know when somebody's not telling the truth because you have been taught and trained. I mean, yeah. I went through the FBI, the ATF, Homeland Security, Wicklander, and a couple of other ones I'm not going to mention. Uh, and well, you not, practice that, it comes naturally. To I'm going to test you right now. <laughs> <laughs> But like you said, it, it, it's not hard. And when I went right. to the when I went to the civilian side, everybody thought I walked in water. And I'm like, "What are you talking about? It's easy." And uh, they didn't believe me, so they brought corporate in and the corporate officers and sat in with me. And uh, they were like, "Man, this guy's just talking. He's not screaming. He's not making <laughs> promises. You know, it's not good cop, bad cop. You know, no." And I was never alone with them. We always had, you know, on the civilian side, HR. And, of course, law enforcement was audio and video recorded. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll stop there with, with knowledge because I don't want to let okay. people know our secrets, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Angela, do you have anything to add or say? No, or? I think it's a great story. I think it is. She did, she did a lot of damage. A lot of times yeah. when, you, when you caught, like, Russian spies – she really was at very high. She had information at the highest levels of our government. So she really yeah. did do damage. Yeah. Even whenever you caught the, the, the men who were doing Russian spies, they weren't, they weren't operating at the high, at the higher levels that she was. Right. I mean, I just could not believe, you know, and some of the people sidetracked me after the first show with Mr. Carmichael and they're like, this is history. I'm like, I know it's history. I mean, yeah. we're talking to people that's actually involved. And if it wasn't for Jeanette, we would never have had contact with you guys, you know? And that, and I love it. And I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to talk to you, both of you all. And, and like I said, you're always welcome back, you know? Uh, Jeanette, you have anything to add? No, I'm just curious. Um, uh, well, for, I have experience because I used to work for uh, some different government agencies. And the only reason I left it is because I, I found it boring. But then again, I was the secretary, you know, the administrative assistant. And you had to work all the hours they told you. It wasn't like you could go home whenever you wanted. We didn't do a nine to five. Um, if there was work, you had to stay. Um, and I was going to college at the time. And there was no way I could finish a college degree with that kind of scheduling. So um, I, I knew about lots of what was going on. And also during that same time frame, my father was doing work with the CIA and um, different government offices in the paranormal. Uh oh, oh lost her. 
Yeah. She had problems last show. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, when I look back on it, I realized that I was fortunate in having all the experiences I had. At the time, I was just busy and working, you know, but uh, I traveled all over the world. I did things that people can't even imagine. Uh, found myself in situations that were sometimes uh, not always comfortable. Oh, but, I can uh, only imagine that part. Yeah, all over the all over the world. Very often by myself, um, sometimes leading teams uh, or being part of a team. Lots of great experiences, great memories. Uh, never bored. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to get bored when you're juggling fifty things at once. You know. Right. Right. No. Just absolutely. Trying to, just trying to figure out how you're going to make it through the day. Scarborough says, "Thank you, Mr. Scott W. Carmichael. He really enjoyed you. He enjoyed you last time." Uh, he was commenting the whole time you were you were speaking. Yeah. Oh. So uh, a lot of people uh, just are so intrigued, you know, to hear stuff like this because we never do. It's either right. in a book, right, or it's never spoken, or or it's not in a book. So right, yeah. it, it's pretty amazing. Welcome yeah. back, Jeanette. I'm glad we had you. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. We're gonna have to get you something where we don't lose you. Yeah, it just happened. So yeah, I guess they both, both Angela and and Scott had a lot of adventures uh, through the government. But again, as a support unit, it's very dry. You don't get to see anything that they're talking about. Um, of course, to them, when they finally get the bad guy, it's probably very exciting. Were you real thrilled when they finally decided to move forward, Scott? Oh, when they finally opened up the case on Anna. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say thrilled. Uh, um... Because I, I, I'd been through this sort of thing before, and, and I knew how much work it was going to take. It was just, it's enormous. And uh, my brain immediately started thinking along those lines. What have I got to do next? What can I accomplish right now? What does Steve need? Uh, you know, I wasn't even thrilled when she was arrested. I was still too busy. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I was happy about it at all. Uh uh -huh. I had no personal feelings towards Anna in this particular case at all, but uh, I can't say that I, that I was ever thrilled or overjoyed or jumping up and down at any point. I was just now that's busy. hard. Now that's really hard, ladies and gentlemen. When you work on something for that long yeah. Yeah, and not yeah. having any emotions, that's that's rough. Yeah. Well, you have to, you, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I agree. You have to take it out of the allegation area and then find the facts and and find all the material that can prove her. As right. a, a, the bad guy, I guess you could say, yeah. um, because I'm sure there's a lot of paperwork that you have to prove. Oh, yes, yeah, you definitely did it. Well, um, and there's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, the, the director of DIA, uh, who was a Navy admiral at the time, Thomas Wilson, um, the responsibility for leaving her in place with access during the course of the investigation all rested on his shoulders. If something went wrong, he was going to be the fall guy. He knew that. Ooh, wow. So he's constantly, you know, it wasn't going to be the secretary of defense. It wasn't going to be the FBI. It wasn't going to be anybody else. It was Admiral Wilson. And so he's putting a lot of pressure on us to wrap it up. Well, shoot, we were, we knew that we didn't have enough. We couldn't wrap it up. And so it, there's a constant uh, tug of war between all of us. Uh, we want more time to work on the case. They need to close the case. And, and so there's a, a great deal of pressure. Um, the FBI would sometimes uh, ask me to do the impossible and to do it within a couple of days uh, or maybe a week at the most. 
and I would have to figure out. And fortunately, the way my brain works, I, you know, the, the colleague that I worked with, his brain worked differently. He would instantly think of all the reasons in the world why it couldn't be done. Oh, and wow. my brain doesn't work that way. I would instantly start thinking, okay, how can I get, get this accomplished? What do I need to do? And I would start piecing it together. And that's how you manage to do the impossible is by doing little pieces at a time. Uh, but th that kind of pressure was pretty much constant for a year. It was always like that. Long hours. Yep. Long hours, a lot of oh. pressure, a lot of stress. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I would agree. So did you have a team of guys doing this or just two of you? Well, at DIA, there was just the two of us. Um, okay. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of work that we had to do. Yeah, just two of us. So, uh, and then just, to, I, I know that we don't have time to, to go into it, but but there are more stories. You know, I mean, there are a lot of other well, and here's a good thing, and I'll go ahead and announce it since since he brought it up. Ladies and gentlemen, we have two good psychics, Angela and Jeanette uh, Matisha Lucas. Uh, they're both very good friends, and uh, we have talked, all three of us, right? And we have decided uh, to have Angela on one day and Jeanette on another. That way, ladies and gentlemen, we're not taken away from Jeanette or taken away from Angela, because we have enough show time. This way we can focus on each person. So whatever Je Jeanette wants to do, we can do. And whatever Angela would like to do, we can do as well. So Sounds good. Yeah, so that way uh, Angela is going to be on the same time, I think, what is it, Mondays at 6 mm -hmm. p.m. Eastern time. So Scarborough, yeah, I know you're going nuts over that, because he's one of your biggest fans, just like Jeanette's. So <laughs> he can never get enough. So, yeah. But uh, I want to throw it out there and let people know because I felt bad, uh, you know, taking time away from Jeanette uh, from her show and stuff. Oh, she fell off. Yep, <laughs> we lost her. But no, but I just wanted to let everybody know that. And hopefully she did not get upset for me broad broadcasting that. But I know everybody's been asking. And, and of course, I want more of anything that Angela and Mr. Carmichael does. And there she comes. Yeah, hey. There we go. Okay, yes. I said, well, we just lost you. Yep. So I think that would um, I think that would accommodate both of you all, and I think that'd be actually best. So yeah, I'm happy. Oh, well, Scott, thank you very much for for sharing your fantastic story, and um, making the public aware of the fact that it it's not like Law and Order; they do it in a couple hours. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Not at all. And see, and then when people talk about spies, they think they just grab you off the street and lock you in a cage. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not what happens. It's not the way it works. No, but thank you, Mrs. Carmichael, Mr. Carmichael. Hey, yes, yeah. and Andrew yeah. Ford, thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the day. Uh, you all have a good evening. What do you think, Jeanette? That was a pretty good show. Fantastic. It's very uh, eye-opening. All right. Well, thank you for having me and uh, everyone have a great night. Yes, everybody take care. And uh, Scarborough says thank you. And the two psychics, Angela and Jeanette. Everybody, it's that time of the evening when we must say goodbye. So take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Coast to coast, around the world.
ladies and gentlemen. It's been an awesome show. Yes, Angela will be on Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. No telling what she's going to bring to the table. I never know what uh, Jeanette's going to have in, in mind. It's always amazing. I'm just glad to be a part of both of them. So, but yeah, you know, email me if you want to be on our show. Email us at any time. Grizzly the Paranormal at gmail.com. That's Grizzly the Paranormal at gmail.com. You can also reach us in Jeanette. Commencing at the side. Let me see here. Yeah. And all crime, including murder, will be I think I got a button here for this. Yes, email us at grizzlytruecrimes at gmail.com. Any suggestions, comments? You want to come on and talk about stuff with us? You want to ask the psychics questions? They're open books. You got another live show coming up at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. That's with another psychic, Bree, Brianna Wilson from Australia. We're actually having an open mic night. Call in and ask any questions or you can come on the show live. I'll send you the link tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Hopefully we'll see you there. Take care, everybody. Coast to coast. And around the world. Good night. A nation reborn. May God be with you all.